welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I'm Brandon Laws, your host. In today's episode, I have a conversation with Scott Miller. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Franklin Covey, and he's out with a new book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. Had a chance to read it cover to cover and enjoyed my conversation with Scott. I think for managers who make their way from individual contributor to now manager, that period of time where you've always been contributing at an individual level and you make it to that time where you're managing people and you're responsible for people development, you need a book like this. So I think you know for HR professionals and other leaders that are listening to this, I think this is a great book that you'd want to flip through. The conversation that you'll listen to here shortly will give you enough that it'll inspire you to probably go get this book and put it in the hands of all your new managers and leaders. So anyways, you're going to enjoy this. There's a lot of takeaways and tangible items you're going to be able to take back and apply immediately. So enjoy the conversation with Scott Miller. He's very passionate about what it takes to become a great manager. Enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or an Apple podcast review would be amazing. Of course, five stars would be even better. So thanks for listening and talk to you next week. Hey, Scott, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Brandon, my honor. Thanks for the platform. I am so happy to have you. So you wrote a book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. You wrote this with Todd Davis, which I've actually had on the podcast before, and Victoria Roos Olson. I am curious, like when you first became a manager, do you wish you had this book in your hands? So were you like sitting in our reading meetings when we were editing it? I mean, <laughs> well, I read your book. You had a couple of good stories in there about just how you kind of crashed and burned as a manager. But walk me through this. You know, did you wish you had this? Oh, my gosh, yes. In fact, it's ironic you asked that because right before the book went to print, Victoria and Todd and I spent two days in my sunroom in my house in Salt Lake. And we reread every line and made thousands of edits. And literally, simultaneously, we all said one day, oh, my gosh. We wish we would have had this book like 15 years ago. I mean, I would be now the CMO, or I'd be the CEO, not the CMO. <laughs> yeah. When you become a leader, nobody sits you down and says to you, congrats on all the skills you've earned. By the way, those things probably aren't going to serve you well leading people. So stop doing all these things and start doing all these things. And I think if we have those conversations, people will be much more prepared for what's expected of them as a leader. And I think that's a good point. I don't think people know what's expected of them. The other day after finishing your book, I had wrote something on LinkedIn, just kind of polling my network about, do you think people jump into management fully trained and ready? Or are they just like sort of pushed into it and then are expected to kind of learn on the go? And most people are like, nobody's trained and they're not even ready for it. So what's kind of happened along the way? to get us to this point where managers aren't even ready to be managers. Well, I've got a point of view on that. You know, the Harvard Business Review published a study recently that said that the average age someone is promoted into their first management role is age 30, which actually mm. dies with me. But the first time they receive their first leadership management training is age 42. There is a 12-year gap of people kind of wow. wandering aimlessly in the desert wrecking havoc on people because they don't know what to do. And I think it's mainly because most people are promoted into a management role because they were a great individual producer, right? They were the best dental hygienist or the best 
digital designer or the top producing revenue salesperson, and they were led into or lured more likely into a leadership mm-hmm. role without really realizing that the skills that make you a great salesperson are the opposite skills Correct. of what make you a great sales leader. Think about it, right? A great salesperson loves competition. They love to win. They love to beat out their colleagues. They love the significance and fame and spotlight of being at the top of the scoreboard. Those are the exact opposite competencies of a sales leader. And I don't think on either end, the person moving you up into leadership, be it you know HR or the line, or the person being promoted really sits down and says, is this a job I really want? Or is this a title and a paycheck that I really mm. want? Because leadership of people is not for everyone. I'm actually curious if people reflect on those questions you just posed. Like, am I ready for this? Or am I really doing it for the paycheck? I don't even know if individual contributors, when they get pushed up to that management level, if they even get that opportunity to think about it. I think you're right. I think people do it for all the wrong reasons, but that doesn't mean they're bad reasons, right? I mean, I think if you look at me, I wanted to lead people because I was led to believe societally that that's how you get promoted. And that's like the next logical step. And, you know, if you just stay in your role, you must be lazy or stagnating. I mean, I didn't make that up. That was, you know, a paradigm that was foisted on me. I also knew that if I wanted to make more money, I wanted to get promoted. If I wanted a better business card or title, I had to lead people. So, for me, there kind of wasn't an option. There was this natural gravitational pull. And for me, Brandon, especially working in a leadership development company, nobody sat me down and said, Scott, here's like the eight things you do really well. Seven of these you have got mm-hmm. to stop doing tomorrow. And here are eight or nine new skills that you probably don't fully appreciate or understand or even know how to do that you're going to need to grow into. So let's talk about these. Had someone sat me down and kind of, you know, pulled me to a higher level of self-awareness and talked me through my blind spots, there's no question I would have been a better leader. I just thought my job was to fix everybody else and turn them into clones of me, <laughs> which is idiotic. But I literally thought that was the case. They want more Scott Miller, so that's my job. But I went around wrecking havoc, trying to turn otherwise very competent people into me. And most of them quit because I was a jerk. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think, you know, as new managers, they think they can just control people or yet to your point, clone them to be exactly like them, but they don't necessarily know how to lead people. And there's a quote that I loved in your book that I thought illustrated that point really well. The quote says, leaders don't, in fact, create engagement. People choose their level of engagement. Leaders create the conditions for engagement for better or worse. End quote. And I think, it's beautiful. Like a great manager leader can help inspire and create a great environment where people can thrive, not necessarily force them into being engaged. That's right. I think, Brandon, it's a subtle difference that, you know, leaders create engagement. You said it. Leaders don't create engagement. They create a culture where people choose a high or low level of engagement. So as a leader, your job is to constantly be thinking about how can I magnetize the best possible talent? not just to come to the company, but to stay in the company. And in fact, hire people who are smarter than me, who are more competent than me, and not be like I was, which was the kind of leader who, I hired smart people, but I hired people who I thought weren't smarter than me so that they would not eclipse my 
security because I was wow. so insecure. Yeah. I wasn't confident enough to hire people who were smarter <laughs> than me. Now, the fact of the matter was they probably were smarter than me, but I held them back or made sure they didn't get more press than I did because I was so insecure and didn't really understand what my purpose was in the company. I learned that late, hopefully not too late in life, but I would say to leaders, your job is not to be the smartest person in the room. Your job is to quote Liz Wiseman, who wrote the book Multipliers, your job isn't to be the genius, your job is to be the genius maker. And if you have the maturity, the self-awareness, the confidence to hire people who are in fact more capable than you are, your job is to keep them there and make them thrive. At what point did you realize that you were making these mistakes as an early manager and shifted your mindset to being one of a multiplier? At age 49 and I'm 51. I'm not kidding you. I mean, <laughs> wow. I've written several books. I wrote a best-selling book six months ago called Management Mess to Leadership Success. Number one new release on Amazon for six solid weeks. And it talks about all my mistakes because I just mentioned, you know what? You know, I was a competent manager in some areas. And, you know, I wasn't a total train wreck, but I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm telling you, I'm embarrassed. And I'm not embarrassed. I'm proud to finally admit that age about 49 and a half, about 18 months ago, I really looked at my blind spots. I took inventory of my assets, my liabilities, my strengths, my profound weaknesses. And I realized, you know what? I have so many competencies and I have so many jealous points and petty points. I'm a human, right? And I realized, gosh, man, my job is to raise other people up and not just hold them back. Now, I have minted a lot of great careers. I've made a lot of people famous. I've made a lot of people a lot of money. I'm one of those leaders of Franklin Covey where you go if you want your career to blossom, just not blossom beyond my own. And I say that in all humility because I've learned to realize that I tend to be the kind of leader who's very happy for your success. Don't just try to become more successful than me. I'm introspective about that in my own personality. And so that I thought maybe you hung up because I was probably. so arrogant. <laughs> no, I love that you're like basically just sharing some of the management flaws that you have and you're owning up to it. Do you talk about that a lot in your previous I do, book? yeah. And I always talk about it in my keynote speeches is that, you know, We've all got messes. We've all got vulnerabilities, insecurities. We all are trying to manage our own career. I'm not a Pollyanna, right? I'm not such that, well, if you just build it, they'll come. No, you got to manage your career. And abundant leaders, mature leaders, thoughtful leaders, leaders who are secure. You know, what I've learned is humility, I used to think was a weakness, Brandon. I thought that shy, quiet, weak people were humble. It's not true. Humility flows from confidence. Confident people can be humble. It's arrogant people who are incapable of showing humility. I so agree. Here's the good news. I learned it at 51, not 61. So I'm looking at the bright side of the cups half full. <laughs> you got so many more I decades to so come. Many more lives, to work. So many more years ahead where I'm not wrecking people's careers. I'm actually building them up. Well, you did catch me off guard by sharing, you know, being vulnerable about some of the management things. I mean, because this book is very proactive about what it takes to be a great manager. And I guess if you put both of those books together, where you're talking about your management flaws, and then you put this together, which is the six critical practices for leading a team, that's a really good part one and part two for any like new manager. It seems to be like 
hey, don't make the same mistakes I did. Here's all the ones I made. Don't make them. And then now, by the way, here are six great practices for leading a team. Is that kind of how you put those together? Yeah, I think you're right. And in fact, you know, this new book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, we share a lot of our challenges, right? Todd and Victoria share mistakes they've made. I mean, Todd is super wise, right? As Franklin Covey's chief people officer, it annoys me sometimes how wise he is. And we know that, you know, not all smart people are wise, but most wise people are smart. And Todd has both of those. But I'm actually quite vulnerable as the narrator of this book. I'm quite vulnerable about sharing a lot of my foibles. What I love about this most recent book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, which debuted at number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller yeah, list. We're quite proud of, we're proud of that, earning that ethically. It's very practical, right? Here are six things that great managers do to build high-performing teams. Not 60 or, you know, 660. Here's just here. If you just do these six things that are, in fact, critical, you will palpably become a great manager and people will choose to stay and work with and for you. I'd love to talk about some of those while I have you. So one-on-ones is an area you cover. I think this is one of the most valuable meetings in a management tool. Running an effective one-on-one, though, is suspect for a lot of managers, though. So what are some of the ways, whether it's questions or a format that you really like that you think you can actually get a lot out of it, both as an employee or manager? Brandon, the whole book is really about changing your mindset, right? Practice one is develop a leader's mindset. That requires a paradigm shift, requires a change in your belief system that no longer are you responsible for getting results on your own, that now your job is to get results with and through other people. And the same applies to practice two, holding regular one-on-ones. You have to challenge your mindset. First, this is not your meeting. It's your team members' meeting. You don't call it. They call it. You don't schedule it. They schedule it. You don't create the agenda. They create the agenda. You don't lead it. Mm. They lead it. You don't talk 80% of the time. They talk 80% of the time. This is not a meeting where you're checking up on them. This is a meeting where they're leading it. They might need your help. And in the book and in the course, we offer some possible questions to ask and conversation starters. And we actually have some proposed agendas. So you help them along, but it requires a fundamental mindset. In fact, in all of my one-on-ones, I bring a little post-it note that has the number two zero for 20, 20%. Scott, only talk 20% of the time. Because as a leader, you're naturally conditioned to always be communicating, peeling the onion, getting to the root cause, right? Solving their problems for them. That's your job, right? Your job is to solve the problem. So I think it's super important to be challenging your mindset. This is not an accountability meeting. This is not your meeting. This is their meeting. This is a chance for you to listen, shut up, understand. Are they enjoying their job? What are their career aspirations? What are their fears? What are their struggles? What's it like to work for you? How could you be a better leader? This is that time where you have a chance to create the conditions for them to choose a high or low level of engagement. Are they ready to quit? Are they ready for a promotion? It's a chance for you to understand what's going on in their life. Everybody's got a brother or sister or son that's vaping. Everybody's got a mother-in-law that's moving into dementia. Everybody's got a bill they can't pay. Some people put their last $3 
and their gas tank on Thursday morning to get to work. And they're eating popcorn that's free for lunch from the break room because they have no money. And they're going to wake up at 12.01 a.m. because the direct deposit came in on Friday morning. And they're headed to Kroger's to buy some milk and Cheerios for their kid for breakfast because they had no money. That is the real world. And as you get promoted into a manager position and further in your career, we tend to lose track. Everybody's got something going on in their life. And the more you can better understand, I didn't say buy their lunch. I didn't say solve their father-in-law's dementia. But as a leader, people quit their bosses, not their jobs. If people feel like their leader cares about them and loves them, they don't take the call from the LinkedIn recruiter. And I say that with some gravity, but I mean it with enormous passion and credibility. That's been my experience. The one-on-one meeting can be a whole different level of connection between you and your people. And is that built over time? Because I'd imagine yeah, some managers who are, are just stepping yeah. into it, like, how do you ask those kind of questions? You got to build the relationships. Do you come prepared? You know, the employee, Brandon, might not be comfortable leading the meeting. So you might lead the first one and kind of coach them along, right? Don't overcommit, don't overschedule, don't cancel them, all those things in the book. But yeah, I mean, don't be naive. Recognize that, you know, you might want to announce, hey, I'd love to have a new kind of meeting with you all. I think it should be a one-on-one meeting. Your meeting, not mine. You take the agenda. You lead it. I listen. Let's strive for one a month. 30 minutes. Bring to the table your top four or five issues. Nothing's off limits. I'm happy to discuss anything, including how my leadership style is or isn't working for you. What can I do to make you better love your job? I might have some feedback for you, but only if you want to hear it, because this meeting is your meeting. It's not a review. It's not an assessment. It's not a performance appraisal. So every leader needs to show a different level of emotional nimbleness on which team members, you know, are better adept at having it. Don't expect for the person to open up the first meeting and call you out on all your bad leadership qualities. Don't force them into a corner and then attack them or ambush them. Really show some mental maturity. Role play it with somebody in HR. Role play it with your boss, right? And kind of find your groove. Don't lure anybody into the, you know, shallow end and then dunk their head under the water. I think something that managers struggle with a lot is connecting the employees and their contributions to the overall bigger picture, whether it's results or initiatives. Is the one-on-one a good way for you know, connecting those two things together to let employees know that, hey, here's how your contributions are making a bigger yeah, impact? Yeah, may well be. What do you think? I think every one of them is different. I don't think there's one formula other than the purpose. The purpose is to build a connection, to establish trust, to truly, with empathy, understand their world. What are their needs? Now, they might have some needs that are disconnected or arrogant. They may have expectations that are unrealistic. That's okay. This is a chance for you to build culture, to build connections. And so whatever does that, great. But don't hijack the meeting and try to force fit, you know, what should be happening in a staff meeting or in a project accountability Mm. or in an annual review or in a feedback session where you're providing perhaps reinforcing or redirecting feedback. Be very conscious. Their meeting, not mine. Love that. Let's jump over to feedback. You have a great section on feedback. On page 78, you talk about the two extremes of giving feedback. 
what are those? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of not just providing feedback, but of accepting feedback. I think that too often we lie on one of those continuums, right? Where we're very courageous in our feedback. And like me, you'll share anything with anyone. I'll talk to people about your productivity, your tardiness, your bad breath, your personal hygiene. I'll talk to you about your inability to collaborate or be self-awareness or ever give anybody credit or ever take responsibility for your mistakes. I'll discuss anything with anybody. And that's a strength of mine. But like all strengths, Brandon, when overplayed or taken too far, they can become a weakness. Because I've known to verbally eviscerate people by my, you know, complete, unmitigated level of courage. The opposite side is what you might call too much consideration, right? Being too genteel, too diplomatic, too shy, too soft, too obfuscating the facts. Therefore, you're so sensitive, you never deliver the news. Courageous leaders also balance consideration. Considerate leaders balance it with courage. When you come into any feedback session, check your intent, declare your intent. In fact, be willing to say, you know, Brandon, I've called you in today to have a discussion with you because I have your best interest at heart. I want your brand to be built strong here. I see a great career here. I also see some behaviors that might be tripping you up, and my intent is to help you. I might say some of the wrong words. Quite frankly, I'm a little bit nervous. So pre-forgive me if I ask for a do-over. But I want to talk to you about is I notice in meetings that you're really dominating all the conversation. And you kind of sometimes will wrestle things to the floor and never give a chance for anybody else to win. You get the point, right? Role play it. Have one of your leaders, HR, you know, talk to you about your body language. Are you too, you know, fiercely courageous and you're just, you know, cutting the person down and damaging their self-esteem? Or are you so diplomatic where you kind of never get to the point and no one really knows what it is you're trying to say? There's a great balance there. And it comes with practice. You won't get it right. In fact, my first probably 20 probably went sideways. They always get better with practice. A couple of minutes ago, you talked about reinforcing feedback. I personally think it's powerful. I use it with my kids probably more than my employees. <laughs> Talk about reinforcing feedback and what's the best way to give it. You know, what is it in general? You know, like you, I'm a parent of three boys, five, seven, and nine. And although I had great parents, we always try to do better than our parents did, right? My parents, I think, would admit now in their 80s, they spent most of their time catching me doing wrong and not nearly enough time catching me doing right. I, mean, I spent my entire sixth grade through 12th grade on restriction. I mean, just give me a break. Six solid years. Catch me doing something right. I think the same applies in the workplace. You know, catch people also doing right. There's kind of two types of feedback. There's reinforcing feedback, which is often done in the moment. I love what you wrote in this proposal. Your language is great. It's proactive. It's outcome-oriented. It's short. It's clear. This is a great you know, press release, reinforcing feedback, do more of this. And then there's redirecting feedback. You know, I noticed, Brandon, at the last project launch, you tended to delegate out a lot of your work. And I'm really pleased at your ability to delegate. I want to make sure that no one ever feels wrongly that you're delegating out your entire job 
and people might wonder what it is you're doing. I know that's not your intention, but don't be you know, naive. Be very careful about the level that you delegate out, and you might even be pretty public around making sure your team also sees you doing your fair share, right? That's called redirecting feedback. A little bit less of that and maybe some more of this. I think managers and leaders have to balance that with different people because not everyone likes feedback the same way. Some like it in real time, some like it in private, some like it in public, some like it via email, some want it through smokescreen, some don't want it at all. You've got to really balance the way that you treat people. You can treat everyone fairly and still treat them differently. I think it's an important consideration in management. Yeah, and I think like based on that, like where people want feedback given you know, a lot of different ways, just ask them, right? It's probably the easiest thing to do is ask, how do you like feedback? Private, public? Brandon, I think that is profound <laughs> because I don't know if you present at all or speak, I imagine you do. We tend to present, facilitate, speak the way we learn, right? I'm obviously a very visual auditory learner. I'm very loud. I speak with grand gestures. I talk really fast. I present the way I like to be presented to. I also give feedback the way I like to receive feedback. Clear, concise, courageous, brutal, consistent. Not everybody likes that. So I've had to be much more thoughtful of never beating around the bush, but really understanding how does Jen like feedback different from Jimmy? And those two people like their feedback very very differently. I want to ask you about your section on change management, and then I'll let you go. There's a quote that I liked. It says, when change comes from other people, it's not nearly as enjoyable, end quote. And I think that it's so true. Change is going to happen, especially in this day and age of technology, businesses moving faster than ever. And for most employees, change is just happening to them. So this whole change management process, you outline it beautifully in the book. Talk about it a little bit. Like, how do you, as a manager, walk people through change as it's happening to them? Yeah, I think you set me up really well, Brandon. I mean, you know, I love change when it's my idea. Me too. And I hate change <laughs> when it's someone else's idea. And in fact, you know, a lot of us are known to push through our change initiative with like undeterred gusto and we'll bring other change to its knees. <laughs> If we don't like it, right, we'll crush it or we'll just wait it out or we'll sabotage it. And that's, you know, maybe horrifying to some, but it's very, very common in organizations. I think when change comes, which of course now is constant, there's been a bit of a disservice. I think the well-intended manager has often tried to protect their team from change, which is a good thing often in the short term. It's a bad thing in the long term. Because the more you protect your team from change, the less nimble, the less prepared they are when mandatory change comes that you cannot wait out or bring to its knees. So as leaders, recognize that change is constant. Recognize that change is emotional. Not everybody's going to react as swift or as fast or as excited about it as you have. Not everybody beneath you has the same level of context, right? I mean, you know, the CEO has been in the meeting for six months. The vice president has been in the meeting for six weeks. The director has been in the meetings for six days. You were in the meeting for six hours. 
your team sat in it for six minutes. They can't possibly have been able to understand and assimilate all the reasons why, right? So your job is to appreciate and understand change is emotional. Let people work through it. Not for six months, maybe not for six days, but let people ask questions. Make it safe for people to say, so what does this mean? And why and what and how and where, right? And, you know, you can say this change is happening. We are going to get on the bus and I'm very happy to answer all of your questions or at least take them. I may not be able to answer them all. I may not have the answers. I might have the answer, but I'm not at liberty yet to disclose it. But let's talk about it. We might lose some jobs in our team. We might gain some jobs in our team. We might have different work hours. We might be merging with the other division. I don't know, but let's talk about how we're going to work through it. So in the book, we share a very rudimentary, on purpose, change model that helps people kind of meet them where they are by constantly kind of moving everyone forward, generally at their own pace, recognizing that at some point, the train is going to leave the station and you're either on or you're off. But I think the whole change process just recognizes that change is fearful for many. It is emotional. And the more as a leader, you can meet people where they are, the likelihood is the faster they'll get on board. Scott, if somebody listens to this podcast and decides to go pick up your book, how do you recommend they make sure that all the ideas stick with them? Like, what's the best way to read it? Because I read it cover to cover. There's so many forms and questions and graphics. I mean, I think you could read it cover to cover, but how would you intend for people to make sure that these things are sticking with them? You know, Brandon, it's a tough question, right? Everyone's a different kind of reader. Some are audio, right? Some are digital, some are print, some are slow, some are fast. I'm a very slow reader. I'm the kinder, I mean, I read, you know, about 150 business books a year because I have similar podcasts like yours. I have to read books and put them down after about 15, 20 minutes just to kind of think about, okay, so what does that mean? What are my blind spots? How do I behave differently? What's been my experience? Has my experience been different? So it's hard to answer your question. I think, you know, we've not written War and Peace here. We've not written, you know, Good to Great. This is not meant to be a seminal leadership book. Perhaps it's got some gravity to it. I think it's very practical. I would probably say, you know what? Maybe read it over six days. Maybe read it over six weeks. Maybe you take a chapter a day, a practice a day, and really assess how can I implement what I learned in this today? Or maybe say, you know what, this week, I'm going to read chapter one and implement chapter one and kind of take myself on a six-week journey, a practice a week for six weeks. So I don't look like I'm a changed man or a changed woman, right? Or I've just read the latest fad leadership book. I don't think it's a fad leadership book. I think it's grounded in 40 years of our research and millions of interviews and profiles, but everybody's different. I will tell you one thing. Most business books are written, conscripted by your agreement with your publisher. How many words, right? Most business books are 240 pages long, which is why the last half of every business book goes unread because the author has phoned in the last half of it because they really had 40,000 words, but they signed a deal for 60,000 words. This book is about 180 pages long. It's a full, like 60 plus pages shorter than most business books because we stopped when we were done. That may sound pithy, 
but it's thinner than most business books. So to answer your question, everyone's different. If I was recommending it, I would say, I do think these practices are kind of along the phrase, common knowledge isn't always common practice, right? Dr. Covey said, to know, but not to do, is not to know. So with this, I might say, take your time, take it a chapter a week, implement it, come back, assess yourself, move on. That's good advice. Long answer. Sorry, Brandon. No, it's beautiful. Scott Miller, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people learn more about you, all your books, your speaking, anything at Franklin Covey that you want to pitch? Be great. Well, my wife says it's kind of hard not to find me these days. So you can find me on LinkedIn, <laughs> Scott Miller at Franklin Covey. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. You can visit everyonedeservesagreatmanager.com. You can visit franklincovey.com in my first book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. You can visit me there at managementmess.com. <laughs>